Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Hokies Press Pass Podcast. Alongside Andy Bitter, the Virginia Tech football beat writer for the Roanoke Times, this is Aaron McFarling, sports columnist for the Roanoke Times. I am predicting this will be our best show yet. I you really- are in the best mood I have ever – everything is coming up Millhouse for you today. Like, I don't know if it's a Halloween hangover uh, a gambling success, uh, what it is exactly. If you've had a whole bunch of coffee today, I don't know what it is. I've never seen Aaron in this good of a mood before a podcast. It's all of those things, man. I, I just, we got a late equalizer in, in the, the under 19, uh, European competition. That was very nice. When, what country was this that you were? Uh, it's Europe. It's, it's, you know, the, they oh, play the Champions League, but then before they play those games, the 19 year old and the under, they play the, 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 the club's, 19-year-old and under teams play against each other, and you can bet on those as well. What was the club that came through for you in the clutch? Uh, Fjordnord. Uh, Fjordnord. Uh, yeah, they were playing uh, Shakhtar Donsk, uh, which is a Ukrainian side that was up one nothing very late in the game. And then I can tell this is real because you couldn't possibly make up these team names on the fly. This is this is real stuff, folks. This is this is the level of detail that Aaron understands the global soccer competition in terms of gambling it's not just that though i mean it's you're right the halloween stuff is great uh, i had a really nice email from a reader that i'm gonna read i i'm gonna we're gonna get into you darvish just tell, bringing some love to the world uh we've got the pimpleton minute i've got a metaphor about the simpsons that you know you know that's fun i'm gonna do that if i've got one in my head um and we get to talk about the Biggest game of the year, Miami versus Virginia Tech. I mean, what more do you want? Well, biggest game now. I think Clemson was the biggest game of the year. This one now, after that loss, this becomes the biggest game of the year because Miami uh, could win the Coastal Division this weekend if things fall right. Yeah, stakes are very, very high. We'll, we'll break all that down in just a bit. First off, Andy, I want to compliment you on your tweet of your daughter Emily in her little uh, flamingo suit. Is that it what was it was? a flamingo outfit, yes. Uh, if you have not seen this, go on Andy's Twitter feed. I also retweeted it, uh, but more of you are following Andy than me. It's easy to find. Scroll back. Uh, describe her in that pic- in that little 11-second uh, video and also describe the evening you had with her. It was fun. It was, you know, Halloween with a kid that sort of is starting to grasp Halloween is a lot more fun than just wheeling her around in a you know, strawberry outfit, which I think is what she had last year. Uh, so the clip, it's her walking in slow motion, sort of strutting in slow motion, uh, a la the movie Office Space with Damn It Feels Good to Be a Gangsta in the background. So that was my uh, artistic gift last night that I came came up with this on this whole thing. She loved it. She was running up and down the sidewalk. She was starting to understand the concept of taking one piece of candy when she go to these. When she went around my wife's office, she would go up and just like grab a handful of candy. Like, no, no, we take one. We take one and we move on. Uh, so I, I it, and like she hasn't even got to the point where she's eating the candy yet. As soon as she figures that part out, it's gonna like just exponentially take off. She did have a cookie last night. Uh, this morning while she was eating her breakfast, she was demanding a cookie during breakfast. So I don't know exactly what we've started with this whole thing, but I really like Halloween and it's, it's even more fun with a little toddler daughter. Yeah. You summed it up so well in 11 seconds, what Halloween means to kids, Uh, you know, just 
you're you're on top of the world. You got places to go, people to see. My kids, uh, my son just turned 12 the day before Halloween, so he's on that uh, the cusp of not being able to go trick or treat anymore. He was that's close. That's yeah. like that's like right at the end of it. It's kind of gonna gonna kind of depend on whether he sprouts up big time in in terms of height. He's already pretty tall. Uh, he was the Phantom of the Opera. My daughter Hannah, who is nine, was a cat. Um, they both got huge halls. Our our neighborhood um, doesn't get a lot of trick or treaters, but we we stay local. We go to the neighborhood, we knock on doors, and people are like, "Oh, they're the first trick or treater we've seen all night," and they just load them up with uh, you know two handfuls of stuff, and they're really friendly and nice. And I brought the dogs, and they got treats from people too. It was great. Three legged dog got uh, treats from the, people. The beagle was uh, exact. I mean, the beagle could not have been happier last night. Uh, Gracie, she just had a, an absolute blast. And I'm I'm happy too because I received this email from Chris, um, a listener to the podcast. This happened. You printed this out, so you get yeah. this exactly right here. This happened on Sunday at 10:25 a.m. Uh, the the subject line is very important feedback and very is <laughs> spelled in all caps. If you recall last week, I recommended Trick or Treat. Uh, as something you need to watch if you're a horror fan. You say it right. Trick R Treat. Trick R Treat. Okay. You've got to emphasize uh, the R. It's like Toys R Us. And I wasn't going to watch it this year because I didn't have time. But you know what? Reading Chris's email, I, I was like, I'm going to carve out an hour and a half and I'm going to watch it. And I did that yesterday and I, I'm very glad that I did. It was as good as I remembered. But anyway, here's Chris's email. Aaron, uh, so I know your expertise is sports. Uh, parenthetically, that's debatable. Uh, but I just wanted to give you some feedback on your horror movie game. My wife, who is a horror movie fanatic, loved Trick or Treat. I really went out on a limb giving her your suggestion, but you really came through in the clutch. Thanks, Chris. Wow, it makes it all worth it, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, I, I told you off air, J.J. Watt's getting a lot of credit for doing good, raising $30 million for Hurricane Relief. <laughs> Whatever. But, you know, we're, what we're doing here is just as important, if not more so. <laughs> Obviously. Obviously important. This is this makes it all worth it, folks. This is why Aaron gives these recommendations, and I'm sure you, you'll have more uh, based on this. Do you have other holiday-themed movies that you're, is it really just like tr Halloween stuff that you get into? Uh, yeah, it's mostly Halloween. I, I cranked up House of a Thousand Corpses uh, late last night. Uh, it, that's that's a Rob Zombie. Uh, Probably not for the kids. No, that, that is very violent and gross. And, and uh, it's, The sequel's even better, The Devil's Rejects, and that's really violent and gross and terrible, but uh, it's, it's, it's a visceral experience on Halloween for sure. I don't recommend that for for Chris's wife. I don't know. If she's a real big horror fan, maybe, but it's there's some misogyny and things in there. So you don't have a whole bunch of Thanksgiving recommendations <laughs> coming up next month. No. Just keep watching the zombie movies with the, the terror and the killing and the murdering. It'll be good for the whole family. Yeah, and Charlie Brown's good for all the other ones. Yeah, if you, if you, you know, you just stick with the Charlie Brown. Thanksgiving, the Charlie Brown, Christmas should be good. Um, what I'm going to do here, we usually – Go back and look at the last game that Tech played. This this Duke game was not that interesting to me, and I don't think it was that interesting to you, and we have so much to get to. that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to set my timer for 30 seconds, and I'm going to give you 30 seconds to sum up your thoughts on Duke, and when you hear this thing go off, uh, you are done talking about Duke. Go. Well, I don't think Duke is a great team, but I don't think it's an awful team. So the fact that Virginia Tech handled uh, a team like that in the conditions that it did is probably considered a good win. I think people look at 24-3 to and they go, oh, you didn't blow out Duke. 
Uh, people say Miami beat Duke 31-6 to on the road. Uh, you look at the slop that they had, it was tough to do anything offensively. Defense didn't give up anything, really uh, didn't let Duke get going. Uh, I think you dry yourself off after that win. You're glad about it. and you got- I said it for 30 minutes. <laughs> That's the, that's, I, you know, I came in over prepared, so I can't do the little things now. I said it for 30 minutes, so I had to do a fake, uh, organic, uh, voice buzzer instead of the actual buzzer of the phone. But it looked like you were running out of gas. Anyway. I was, I was trying to wrap it up right as you were about to do it. And then you come in with the, the hockey siren <laughs> over the top of it. I like how we spent six minutes on Halloween at the beginning of this and 30 seconds on the Duke game. You can't say that we don't have our priorities right here, people. That's right. Okay. Let's move into the meat and potatoes of this, this podcast, Miami. I want to start. Miami is ranked ninth in the associated press poll and you are our associated press voter. We will get into the the grand scheme of the polls a little bit more later, like we always do. But ninth, I I don't see it, man. I'm I'm looking at what I saw against North Carolina last week. They struggled. I think it was 24-19, something like that, the the final score. And it was every bit that close. Um, I'm a little disappointed in you. We talked on the little video that we did before this. You said you did not drop them down at all after that performance against UNC. And I want to know why. Well, I didn't drop them because they are 7-0 and right now. I think you have to give credit for winning the games uh, that are on your schedule. Uh, now, I didn't move them up. I didn't go, oh, they're 7-0. They're and i got to move them up to 6th. They're 6th in the coaches' poll, which what? is Lame. absurd. I mean, the, the coaches, I mean, that, that poll, it, people talk about the AP poll. Writers don't know anything. It's like that coaches' poll is an absolute joke, the order of the teams. Wisconsin is 4th in the coaches' poll. I went to Wisconsin. There's no way I could possibly defend putting them 4th. I actually have them ninth in my poll, even though they're unbeaten. But, you know, Wisconsin and Miami are kind of similar. They're, they're two teams that have not really beaten a whole lot of teams out there. And at least Wisconsin has looked good in beating a bunch of nobodies. Uh, Miami has not necessarily looked good winning some of these games. It, uh, you know, came down to the wire against Florida State and beat wins that game. And everybody goes, oh, they got over the Florida State right. hump. And as it turns out, Florida State is terrible this year. Right. I mean, it's you, you're kind of like, oh, they, they've had some rough luck. They played some good teams and they lose. And then they go up to Boston College and get just run off the field by Boston College. That game was not even competitive. And now Boston College is better than I think a lot of people give them credit for. Certainly when Virginia Tech went up there and won uh, 23-10, to 10, and everybody goes, oh, why didn't you beat Boston College by more than that? But uh, it was like 35-3 to three or something. I forget the exact final score, but uh, Florida State is not a good team this year. Uh, they go, they play at home against Georgia Tech. Uh, in the rain, and I guess I should give them some credit for pulling this out in the rain, but Georgia Tech was really dominating that game until the rain made their option offense almost just impossible to run. I mean, it's it's one thing to to try to operate at all, running the ball in the rain. I think you can do that, but when you have to have pitches and things like that, that really compli- complicates it when it's uh, sloppy like that. There's a tip pass on fourth down that they caught that goes down and sets up a touchdown for Miami. Really should feel fortunate to have won that game. Uh, beat Syracuse at home. I think Syracuse is actually a pretty decent team. So holding on at home like that, I think is a, is a good win. Uh, last week at UNC, I cannot defend that performance at all. I mean, we just saw UNC in person. You saw them two weeks in a row. I think that is one of the worst power five football teams I have ever seen yeah. in covering football. I've been covering it since 2002 now. And they had nothing uh, to play for. Yeah. I, I mean, mean their bowl, their bowl eligibility, uh, possibilities are over. 
I mean, you know, look like Fedora's thrown in the towel, and, and then they come and go toe-to-toe with Miami. Yeah, it, it was a really bad performance. They forced four turnovers in the second half just to hold on to win that game. Uh, you know, sometimes you look at that and you go, a team, you kind of give them mulligan sometimes. I think Virginia Tech didn't play great against Delaware, but they weren't in danger of losing that game at any point. Miami was in danger of losing that North Carolina game last week. Uh, so... I did not move them up at all. I did not drop them at this point. I still have them a spot ahead of Virginia Tech, and I even put in my little explanation, like, listen, I know Hokies fans will be upset. They'll say that they're a better team than Miami. You have a chance this week to prove it, and if you beat them on the field, obviously I will put you way ahead of Miami. If Miami loses this game, I will drop them uh, considerably. I I said Miami has a a top-10 record right now, but not a top-10 resume. They have not been playing like a top-10 team. But I think you have to respect the record at this point. So at this point, I have them at 10th. I don't have them higher than that up in the, in the you know top five or would you be considered for the playoff because I don't think they're anywhere near that kind of uh, caliber of team. Well, if you look at the schedule, you say, okay, that's maybe a classic trap situation where you go to North Carolina and you, on deck you have Virginia Tech, which you know is a huge coastal battle, and then you have a top 10 Notre Dame team after that. I mean, that that is a kind of a cl- classic trap situation. I do expect a better Miami team on Saturday than we saw last week. But still, I can't excuse anybody not beating North Carolina this year by more than 20. I mean, it, the, the line was 20. Um, I didn't ta- I didn't take either side of that. But uh, if I if, you know you put a gun to my head and said you had to take either side of that, I would have taken the Canes probably. Um, and I don't like giving that kind of that kind of lumber. But you know, one of the things that happened in that game against North Carolina is, is Rozier, their quarterback Malik Rozier, went out of the game a little bit. Uh, had to go to the locker room, uh, shoulder woes came back in finished the game do we know anything about his situation how he uh how he's recovering this week whether he's practicing that kind of stuff you know the only information i have is from the beat writers down there in miami reading their stuff uh it sounds like all the players had monday off uh tuesday he was back as a full participant uh i think mark rick said his shoulder was a little sore uh i believe it's a throwing shoulder if they're talking about the like is being such a big concern like this i, I haven't done that much research i'm not, i didn't come in pre- as prepared as you did today <laughs> at this podcast apparently uh it sounds like he'll be good to go on saturday uh i mean he's been really good this year he's second in the acc in passing yards uh behind eric dungy at syracuse 295 yards a game uh 17 touchdowns four interceptions again i think you look at the competition uh maybe that's a reason why the numbers are that good but it's still good really good numbers really efficient passer I think people kind of wondered after Brad Kaya left how they would replace him. And, and, you know, kind of much like Josh Jackson at Virginia Tech, he's been a real steady guy, uh, a real playmaker as well at quarterback. And, you know, that makes Miami is like, oh, are they a, a top 25 team if they don't have a quarterback to, oh, they're, they're maybe in the top 10 now that they have this guy running the show. So uh, I would say you probably don't want to go into a game against Virginia Tech and Bud Foster's defense less than 100%. Right. Uh, certainly if it, if it impacts your throwing in any way uh, with that shoulder. So we'll see what it is he's going to be like for Saturday. I would imagine Miami would take all the precautions necessary to, to get him to Saturday and be ready to play in that game. But, uh, you know, I, I think he's put up really good numbers so far this year. I think this will be a different level of defense that he's faced at all this season, though. Yeah, well, I had the Miami game on my Kindle, and I had on the big TV, I had the Virginia-Pittsburgh uh, game, which was going on concurrently. And I was watching that game, and I'm like, what's wrong with Kurt Binker? You know, he's he looks like he's not throwing the ball through the windows like he used to, and like he looks like he's not confident. And it was revealed after the game, this is related to what we were just talking about, that Binker has been battling a shoulder injury. 
Um, you, it doesn't take much. Shoulder injuries aren't, aren't anything to mess with if you're a quarterback. It, it doesn't take much to take you off your game, take a little zip off the ball, and make those passes that were getting to your receivers suddenly very interceptable. Yeah, it's it's like a you know baseball pitcher being like, oh, I got some tightness in the shoulder. Yeah. It's like they'll take every precaution immediately to be like, all right, shut it down. Don't do anything. Don't mess it up. Like that's sort of your your moneymaker right there is your throwing arm. Uh, so I would imagine this is is something that's you know caused a little bit of concern from the Miami side, and you know <laughs> it brought it up to Bud yesterday. At the press conference, I'm like, you know, it sounds like his shoulders a little dinged up, and Buzz like, I hope so. <laughs> like, he, he was obviously a, a joking, right? He's, he doesn't wish harm on anybody right. like that. But he was saying this guy's been pretty good, so if he's less than 100%, that's probably a good thing for the Hokies. Yeah, and one of the guys who'll be chasing him around the field will be Tim Settle. And you wrote a very nice story this week on Tim. Uh, summarize your story and just sort of how he's emerged from backup to uh, impact player in the ACC. Well. Tim is a big guy. I think everybody knows this. Uh, he came in here, uh, reported when he first got to Virginia Tech, he was 360 pounds. And, you know, in high school, you're just a big guy. You just throw people around. You can be that big and, and still be a really effective player. It's tough, it's tough to do that in college, though. You have to be able to move. You can't just be, a, you know, a big stone in the middle of the field. Some guys are like that, but the more effective guys can actually make plays. So his whole thing was he was going to have to slim down a little bit, lose some weight, condition, uh, and to his credit, he's done a great job of that. He's 335. I mean, he's not going to be, you know, a swimsuit model out there. Everybody I talk to is like, listen, Tim's a big guy now. He's never going to be a small guy. He's a big guy, but he has slimmed down enough to the point where he's really effective because he can move and he can make plays. Uh, he's tops on the team, I think, with nine and a half tackles for a loss. He has three sacks, which is second on the team. He's playing 50 to 55 snaps a game. Uh, which, you know, we asked him, uh, talked to him a couple years ago. I put this this feature story in the bank so I could write it ahead of time to go trick-or-treating. Uh, so I wasn't worried about writing something yesterday. But a couple weeks ago, we're like, hey, you know, how many plays could you have gone last year before you get tired? And he's like, 10? Like a fourth of that. And so that's the difference between being a guy that comes in as a part-time player and being a, a starter who's really making a lot of, uh, you know, effort in, in, in progress in this defense. So, you know, I talked to a couple of people. I talked to Ben Hilgert, the strength coach, about sort of uh, the transformation that, that Tim's done. He's like, you know, that's that's the hard part of uh, strength training. It's like it's fun when you go to somebody and like, listen, you have to gain weight. You have to eat everything you can and just lift weights. Like that's that's fun. It's hard when you go up to somebody and it's like you got to drop 30 pounds. Like people say, oh, he has a lot of weight to drop. It's still 10% of his body weight. Right. Like, have you ever dropped? Like, I'm 180 pounds. I've never lost 18 pounds in my life. That would be a, a significant accomplishment and, uh, you know, something that's a really major uh, achievement to be able to do that. So you look at what Tim's lost, 30, 25, 30 pounds. That's a lot of weight. So I think everybody in the program has been very impressed by how he's gone about it. You know, I think Tim is an easy guy to root for within this program just because he's sort of – uh, you know, he, he donned the Santa Claus outfit last year at the Belt Bowl and Fuente was saying, you know, guys sort of flock to him like he's the Pied Piper. He just sort of has that personality that uh, he's a very easy guy to root for. So 
I think it's a very it's a very interesting story, a good story to look at and see how far he's come in the last year and how effective he's been on the field because of it. Yeah, and if you haven't read it, go back on Roanoke.com. You can find it there. I can tell you, I don't think either one of us will be losing 20% of our body weight uh, this weekend in South Beach with those no. $100 appetizers and giant fishbowl ales they've got. I'm sorry, up. I'm actually getting a message from uh, Human Resources here <laughs> about our expense reports in advance, getting a reminder not to go too crazy on South Beach. We should pause and talk about this. Buckets of El Presidentes. I, I really owe you because when Randy King was the beat writer of this uh, of the Hokies, I would travel with Randy and he would make the hotel reservations. I never saw any part of Miami outside of the airport. Okay, we stayed at the airport, which if you've ever gone to the Miami airport, it's not the nicest neighborhood. My mom grew up in that neighborhood, and it was – she said there was, you know, murders every day and stuff. And she took us through there one time, and we had to – it was like that uh, – that, National Lampoon's vacation where he's like, are you noticing this plight, young man? And then it's like, roll him up. And that's basically what we did. Was that going through St. Louis or something like that? <laughs> there was uh, Baltimore. I think. Oh, okay. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, the, the, you have opened my eyes to the possibilities of Miami. I mean, we're, we'll be on the beach at this on this on Friday. This will be great. We've got it down to a science now where we get a real – dingy hotel i mean whatever you get on, on south beach you're either going to pay an arm and a leg to get a place that's halfway decent or you're just going to do like we do and pay overpay for a dingy hotel that's like listen i'm going to set my bag there go out to the beach and then sleep a couple hours so that's what we're going to do the first day get to the beach as quick as possible hopefully the weather's nice uh enjoy some ocean drive nightlife <laughs> activity uh, we usually find you can go five feet and find really good food and, and beers. You don't need to walk around for two hours trying to find a taco stand somewhere at night. Uh, <laughs> usually the food will find you in those situations. Uh, a little expensive sometimes. I think we had a what was it, $120 appetizer plate. We, whenever you go out to these places, you're like, yes, bring the food, bring the food. There's no prices on the menu. And then you, you get the check at the end of the night and you're like, oh, what have we done? This is horrible. Somebody made a mistake of asking how much the beers were because <laughs> those weren't on the – No, I, I believe it was It was like I'll take one of these margaritas. It's like a $25 like fishbowl-like margarita and we're like, no, no. I'm going to be more sensible about this. Give me a Corona. They bring like a Corona out in one of those fishbowls. It's like $13 by itself. So – Oh, it was uh, more than that. It was like 18 to 20. Yeah, and then what, we had buckets of El Presidente at uh, the Clevelander, which I think were $30, $40 a piece. So it's not a cheap trip. Uh, trust us, human resources, all of this will not go on to our expense reports. <laughs> uh, but we'll enjoy it. We, we have a good time in Miami. We go there. They could play this game every year. I kind of hope that Virginia Tech goes to the Orange Bowl this year because I would like to go back to Miami and spend a, a little more time there. Yeah, spend a whole week there. Well – Back to Miami itself, uh, you also wrote a, about the turnover the turnover chain. Uh, explain what the turnover chain is, and I guess it's been pretty effective, at least in motivating them to get turnovers this year. They're not doing bad in that department. It is perhaps the most Miami thing ever that you could do in a football game. They, they came up with this, and I think the story is they didn't really tell Mark Richt about it until right before the game. Like, oh, by the way, we came up with this turnover chain. It's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Do whatever you need to do. It's this... Cuban linked gold chain that has this giant U logo that's got uh, green and orange sapphires on. I mean, it's just incredibly gaudy and it is so Miami, like to its core. Like this is like the brash hurricanes of the past that whoever forces a turnover, 
uh, in the game, uh, they get to the sideline, they put this chain around their neck, they get to wear it like it's a, a prize for it. I think George is doing something similar with like these uh, Legion of Doom shoulder pads on the sideline, which I think is a, I think that's better than the chain myself. But the, the gold chain is a pretty cool idea as well. And you know, Miami is second in the ACC in turnovers forced. Uh, leads the the league in turnover margins. So, you know, I think this is a pretty good defense to begin with, but I think when you prioritize something like that or offer this little reward at the end of it, that uh, it, it entices these guys even more to go out there and do them. Now, Miami hasn't done anything with these turnovers. They've been very bad at turning those into points, but uh, it's a big part of this defense that they're forcing those turnovers. I think it kind of energizes the whole team and uh, certainly obviously stops the other team from progressing down the field and scoring. Well, I promised we would only talk 30 seconds about Duke, but this is related to the turnovers. I mean, Tech didn't have any turnovers in that Duke game, and, and with the weather the way it was. They didn't fumble it once. I mean, I mean there was a Greg Stroman at the, at the end of the punt return that got overturned, but at, you expect some mishandling in the rain. Last year they had right. seven fumbles, only lost two against North Carolina. They didn't have a single one like that against Duke, which was pretty impressive. Why? I mean, how are they doing this? It's I think it's the focus that they've put on it. I've never met a coach uh, other than Fuente that prioritizes it this much. Like I've, I've heard uh, you know, other coaches, they all say, oh, turnovers are important. But Fuente takes it to the extreme. Uh, to the point where it's just like it's a emphasis every single day at practice. He talks about it in these just, these grand overtones, the overtures about, uh, you know, I want to see visual, what was it, visual confirmation, confirmation that you're holding on to the ball. In the past, they've talked about, you know, when you're carrying the ball, you're carrying the hopes and dreams of the team. I think Gerard Evans said that last year. I, I want to say he parroted that from Fuente, but I can't find the actual Fuente quote where he said that. I feel like he said that, though, You know at some who once point. said that? Al Groh. Did he? Yeah, the hopes and dreams of the organization maybe, is what. Is what uh, maybe Al I'm said. maybe I'm conflating what Al said at some point with what Fuente. But you, you know, you fumble and you're running back and you're just you're on the bench for a considerable amount of time. I've never seen somebody emphasize it so much. So I think that has gotten through to them at a point that whatever you do, even if you're not. Uh, you know, making these highlight uh, real plays where you're making guys miss and doing spin moves and stuff, you're going to hold on to the ball because if you don't, you're not going to play. I, I, I feel like that message has gotten through to these guys. Yeah, it has. And Fuente, that's a good shoving off point for my Simpsons metaphor because I was thinking all week of trying to come up with a metaphor for these first uh, eight games that the Hokies have played and specifically the games they've played where they haven't had to work too hard to win the games. Uh, we've mentioned on this podcast numerous times, five of their wins have become, uh, come against teams well, that were underdogs by two touchdowns or more. Um, so I was thinking about it. I've got two metaphors. One, the winner is actually going to go in my Saturday column. The loser, the runner-up, is going to go here, but I think this is more appropriate for our podcast listeners because I think we have some Simpsons fans out there. And I wouldn't have to explain it too much. But there's an episode of The Simpsons, and I don't remember exactly why, but but Bart had to go back to kindergarten. You remember that? Vaguely. He had to go back to kindergarten for some reason. And Is that when they tell him to take out a circle of paper and a <laughs> <laughs> That was a that was a different one. But okay. Yeah, he was then the teacher puts a a series of shapes on the board and says, Who can identify this shape? And and Bart goes, Triangle. And she's like, very good, Bart. And he goes and gets to play with a Flintstone phone. This, to me, is what Fuente has been doing. We know Fuente is a an offensive mastermind. Him and Cornelson together, they have shown us enough that they know what they're doing offensively. Okay, 
they've basically been identifying triangles here, and they've been they've getting they're getting a reward. They're getting to play with the Flintstone phone, but they have not been challenged. They have not been you know. And people might say, well, what about Clemson? That's a challenge. I think if you go back and look and read those quotes beforehand, where he was talking about defusing a bomb and all that stuff. I don't think he thought necessarily that his team measured up physically to this this Clemson team, and, and so I think it was a more cautious. Let's just try and keep this a uh, game into the fourth quarter and try to win it somehow at the end by just you know playing our game. I think this week you're going to see uh, the best of Fuente's imagination, and I don't mean flea flickers, and I don't mean you know they're going to throw the ball deep every second. But I do think you're going to see more Josh Jackson running. I think you're going to see more uh, imaginative play calling. Um, and, and I don't, and I'm not saying they didn't use their imagination to win these other games. They did, but there, there comes a point when you're up by two or three touchdowns, you don't have to show everything and they haven't. What do you think of that metaphor? I didn't think that's where you were going to go with that. When you mentioned that, I thought you, you brought that up and you're like, Miami is Bart Simpson in this case, in that they're just, winning over these easy teams and thinking it's an accomplishment. Uh, so I thought you were going to go that way, but no, I, I think it's accurate. I think, uh, you know, they haven't shown everything that they can do on offense. I mean, you, the one game where you sort of saw a lot of those read plays and quarterback runs and it, you know, sort of pulling out a lot of the tricks was that West Virginia game. Exactly. And that was the the one game that came down to the wire and it was tight. They were in it the whole way. Uh, so yeah, I, I think you'll see, uh, more of what the offense has to offer in this game or pulling out all the stops to win this game. Cause this is, this is must win. I mean, you know, I, I referenced that, you know, Miami can clinch the coastal. They need Georgia tech to beat Virginia earlier in the day, quite possible given how those two teams are. And then if Miami wins, they win the division. Right. I mean, it's that simple. Uh, so yeah, I, I think this is a, and you know what is a kitchen sink game is what people say i mean you do everything you have to do to win this game because this the, you know it's the next game so it's the most important game on the schedule but beyond that you cannot win the division if you lose this game so they have to do what they have to do remember that fake punt against clemson in the acc title game i mean that's the kind of thing that you might see here because it, i think in that game fuente and, and we we've talked we talked all offseason about how fuente was that was eating at him that game because he thought they were good enough to win that game I don't know that he felt that way. If you put him on a lie detector, I don't know that he felt that way against Clemson this year, coming into that game, that he felt like they measured up. Uh, but I think the totality of their their performances this year, they measure up to Miami. I don't think there's any question. The line is reflecting it. Um, the line came out as a, a lot of places, but Miami by two. Now it's Tech by three in a lot of places. And that was an instantaneous swing, yeah. too. I mean, that was like within the first hour. People are like, nope, Virginia Tech should be favored in this game. Yeah, and if, if Tech gets blasted here, I'll be stunned. I'll be absolutely stunned. I mean, we, we talked about going into the Clemson game. Like There there were scenarios where there, you could see a doomsday scenario where they just get run off the field because Clemson was that good. But I think where Tech is and where Miami is right now, I just I can't see Tech losing this game by two touchdowns or something like that. Yeah, you know, we'll get to our predictions at the end, and I think this will be reflected uh, when we pick the actual scores in this. But uh, you know, it's not like Miami has this incredible home field advantage that they, you know, play down there. It's, it's, they show up when they show up, when the team's really good. So they might show up in this game. I still don't think it's this sort of just raucous on top of you crowd like, you know, Death Valley when you play at Clemson or something like that. Uh, yeah, I just – I think how they've played. You have to look at how these teams have played over the year. Virginia Tech – 
you know, itself has not played a whole lot of competition. You mentioned that. So I, I think all these things we're saying about Miami, oh, they haven't beaten anybody. I think you can sort of say the same thing about Virginia Tech, which, again, is a reason why you look at these rankings. They're the lowest ranked one-loss Power 5 team in a lot of these polls. I think I have them ahead of Oklahoma State and Washington. Uh, I think even then uh, you can make an argument for Okie State being ahead of Virginia Tech. They both beat West Virginia. I mean, that's sort of the signature win for both programs. So it's not like they've gone out and beaten uh, a whole lot of quality teams out there. But uh, yeah, I, I do think this game will tell us a whole lot about Virginia Tech. I, I think Fuente does feel more confident about this game than he did against the Clemson one because, like you said, I think they do match up better against the Hurricanes. This defense is playing very fast, very fast. The numbers are great, and we know the competition hasn't been great, but just visually, I'm watching them against Duke, and I'm saying these guys are moving, and they're moving quick, and they're running over people. And I think somebody asked him this – somebody asked Fuente this week, why did he go for it on on fourth and five instead of – I asked that. Did you ask that? Okay. That was a good question. Um, And he said basically one of the reasons it wasn't – one of the reasons was the kicker. He, you know, it hasn't been the most successful place to kick from. But he also said he has a lot of faith in this defense right now. And I think that when you have that kind of faith in your defense, it allows you, it opens you up to to be more creative offensively and try some things that even if it doesn't work, well, your defense could bail you out of that situation. Tech has an 11.5 point scoring average against it that's, this year. That's second in the country to Alabama. That's amazing. And uh, you know, you have to throw in the you know disclaimer: the, the competition has not been great, but that is the lowest they've been since I think 2006, when they were number one in the country. There's a lot of stats this year that you're throwing out with this defense that it's the most since you know in that 2005, 2006, 2007 range when this was an absolute elite defense. It was a national championship caliber defense, and they never had the offense to pair with it. Uh, it's still a question mark whether the offense is good enough to do that this year. Uh, it's coming along, but it's it's still not. Uh, I I don't think it's as good as last year's offense, as explosive as last year's offense was with all the star power that it had last year. But this defense is really, really good, and it's, it's as good as it's been in a long time. At least 2011, I would say, that was a very strong group. And, and you go back even a couple years before that when they were sort of uh, top of the heap nationally. But I think the interesting thing about this defense is it's not like it's like – Oh, they have a Jadavian Clowney caliber player on the defensive line that just makes them so good. It's just it's this depth of talent across the board. And you know, I look at these defensive stats and uh nobody has more than three and a half sacks. Nobody's in double digits with tackles for a loss, but they have a lot of guys that are doing this and making all these plays. I mean Last week, you see Trayvon Hale on plays. You see Vinny Mahota in the backfield blowing stuff up. The tackles obviously have made plays all the time. Book Reynolds forced a fumble. Tremaine Edmonds, you don't need to say a lot about him, just how talented he is. Andrew Matuabwaka makes all, all sorts of uh, tackles, even though people have complained about him his entire career. He's been extremely productive. They have depth at cornerback. I think that's one big thing against Miami is Miami can beat you with big plays. They have cornerbacks that are not afraid to go up and, and go one-on-one down the field like that. Terrell Edmonds is a you know veteran guy at safety. Reggie Floyd's been really good in his first year. There's just not a weak spot 
in this defense. There's not necessarily a, an area that you can exploit to go, oh, we're going to attack the air, or, you know, just beat them on the ground. I think it's it's strong from from front to back. It's got maybe depth issues are its biggest thing right now. Certainly losing Divine Diablo for the year with an injury is tough, but uh, even still, you got guys like uh, Jared Hewitt coming along, Haushin Gaines. Uh, I think Anthony Chigag is sort of a utility guy that can play a lot of roles. Uh, there's not a lot of weaknesses in this group, and I, you know, I think this is part of the reason why the Virginia Tech, Tech job was so appealing for Fuentes because Bud Foster was here. This defense was in place, and he knew it wasn't something that he'd have to go and and build from scratch. Yeah, I've written about it before this season, and we've talked about it on this podcast. But it, to me, it feels like these these defensive players this year were just born to play defense. They love to hit. They're vicious. You don't have a lot of the quote unquote looks like Tarzan plays like Jane types who may look physically imposing, but don't have the spirit or the or the the killer instinct that you need to play great defense. And we've seen it in the past with some of Bud's Bud's defenses where they have a, a collection of guys who are who have the same uh, violent mentality. And I think you've got that group here right now. And I think they do have a chance to be one of the best ever in terms of their numbers. And uh, we'll see. I mean, this, I asked you when we, before we came on the air, what are your keys to this game? And you mentioned turnovers and we've already talked about that. Another thing was, you know, limiting the big plays of Miami. Let's, let's talk about the possibilities that Miami has offensively to create big plays, even against a very good defense. Well, you look at the skill players that they have on this team. They can beat you down the field. I mean, uh, Amon Richards has been hurt uh, some this year, but he was like 20 yards a, carry, uh, a catch last year. I think he's at 19.3 or something like that this year. He's legit track speed and, and is a big play guy. They have other receivers there like that. I, I think the the one has really stood out lately is Braxton Berrios, who's kind of worked in the slot. Uh, so he's maybe not as, as much of a big play like gay like guy like that. Uh, Travis Homer has come in for Mark Walton, who got injured, one of the best running backs in the league. He's still a threat to go take it to the house. You got Malik Rozier uh, with a, a big arm quarterback that's got that potential. Uh, you look historically at the Miami games, and the, the one that kind of sticks out in my mind a couple years ago um, was the Duke Johnson game at Virginia Tech. Right. And they just had playmakers all over the field. It wasn't Kaya that was beating them. It was just Duke Johnson was so good. <laughs> that he was just making guys miss all the time. I remember they threw a pass out uh, right before halftime in the open field. And for, for some reason, the defense called for Daddy Nicholas to drop into coverage uh, and cover Duke Johnson. It's like that is the mismatch of the century. Like Daddy was a very athletic defensive end, and he stood no chance against Duke Johnson that play. Uh, they scored a touchdown and really kind of put things away before halftime. I think Miami always has that sort of caliber of athlete that uh, if you get them the ball in a certain spot, they're a chance to take to the house every time. And that's what they can't allow to have happen in this game from Virginia Tech's side is, uh, you know, they've got to make the Hurricanes move the ball methodically down the field. They've got to have a 12-play drive to be able to score a touchdown, and Virginia Tech's going to feel good about itself because if you leave an opening and the guy goes 80 yards for a touchdown, that's that's not making the other team work very hard to get those points. Definitely. Well, this this game has obvious big poll ramifications uh, let's let's get to your poll. Who were the big movers and shakers this week? And maybe you can also touch on the uh, the the first playoff rankings that were out there. Well, I felt sort of encouraged when I saw the college football playoff rankings because we had the exact same top six almost. The only thing difference was they had Georgia number one instead of Alabama. They flipped those one and two, but I had Notre Dame third. I think uh, you look at the quality of wins that they've had: three against the top twenty-five. None of those games have been particularly close. Uh, one loss to Georgia 
who I have number two in my rankings. It was one point loss at home. That's the best resume out there. Clemson has a bunch of top 25 wins as well. Uh, after that, I went Oklahoma and then Ohio State. Oklahoma beat Ohio State in Ohio State, so I think they're higher in the, the polls because of that. And I think Ohio State's win against Penn State was a really good one. So that's my top six. Uh, it essentially mirrored what the uh, the uh, college football playoff committee came out. I guess that's uh, sort of validation of how I've been <laughs> ranking these teams during the year. I felt good about this poll when I turned it in. I thought I had the teams in the right order. Uh, biggest mover this week, probably Iowa State. I, I jumped them up to number Let's see here. Number 13, a 10-point jump. They have two better wins this year than pretty much anybody in the poll. I mean, they've beaten Oklahoma. They've beaten TCU. Those are both top ten, te- top five teams at the time, top ten teams right now I have in my poll. So, uh, yeah, that was that was the big move there was Iowa State. Uh, I have the Hokies 11th still, but obviously uh, opportunity to move up this week if they beat Miami. Well, Andy, you know who always ranks highly in my personal poll? Who's that, Aaron? I don't That's right. It's time for the Pimpleton Minute. Uh, Pimpleton did nothing last week. Uh, still love you, Khalil. Get out there and do something. We'll get you on this. Sh- this is kind of my my little minute here. Aaron has carved this out. This is no longer the Pimpleton Minute. This is the McFarlane Minute. He's like, I play the music. I say something about Pimpleton real quick. Then I have the floor for the next couple minutes. I want to slip in this U Darvish take because uh, he's pitching Game 7 of the World Series tonight. Uh, you and I are both big baseball fans. I am in just loving this World Series, and maybe that has something to do with my mood too. I've just just enjoyed the heck out of this World Series. Darvish, as as a lot of people know, if you're a baseball fan, uh, was the subject of a, a racial, in, a racially insensitive thing. Um, Yuli Goriel for the Astros um, made the slanty eyes in the dugout, and uh, after hitting a home run, and said. Uh, Said a, a racial slur in Spanish, uh, "chinito," which means "little Chinese boy." Uh, none of that was cool. Um, there was outrage, as as there should have been. People calling for him to be suspended, so forth, so on and so forth. Here's what you Darvish tweeted out um, after that. Okay, he says, "No one is perfect. That includes both you and I. What he had done today isn't right." but I believe we should put our effort into learning rather than to accuse him. If we can take something from this, this is a giant step for mankind. Since we are living in such a wonderful world, let's stay positive and move forward instead of focusing on anger. I'm counting on everyone's big love. Darvish, I mean, I just want to say, it, this is kind of like what when you got last week when we talked about how you you got in that little Twitter flap with that guy and then he apologized the next day and then it was all of a sudden your day just brightened. Yeah, you were like, I have faith in humanity again. Like, I'm not saying people should just acquiesce when they get when they're the subject of racial taunts, but at some point somebody has to stand up and be the bigger person. And I think in this country where everyone from the president on down is provocative and, and you know, there's so much rancor and so many people yelling at each other and, and nobody ever just puts a stop to it and says, okay, I forgive you for having that opinion. I don't agree with it. He, Darvish didn't agree with what, what Guriel said, but I think Guriel probably learned more from this situation. I don't think you'll ever see Guriel do something like this again because of the, the way Darvish responded to this and he's going to have to pitch against Guriel tonight. Guriel could hit a home run against him. Like if he hadn't been so 
uh, gracious uh, in this cir- circumstance, he probably would have helped the Dodgers' chances a little bit more. Uh, what did you think about Darvish's quote there? I thought it was refreshing, especially in this like outrage culture that we have today. That if anything happens, you have to somebody needs to be fired or right. suspended, and you know he has definitely earned his suspension that he's going to get at the beginning of next year. Um, you know, I think it was probably wise of baseball not to put the suspension in the World Series. You put it in the World Series, obviously they appeal it. Obviously that appeal is not going to be heard for a while. Uh, if you say, oh, we're going to give you one game and because it's the World Series, that's such a harsh punishment. All of a sudden you appeal it, that pushes it back to next year, and they get one game next year. It's like, okay, that's not really. But by saying, oh, you get five games next year, I think it lessens sort of that moment taking over what the World Series was. And, you know, you Darvish's response was great. Uh, it was good to see sort of that sort of uplifting message and, hey, let's not dwell on this. Uh, I also think it was great that Rich Hill last night, when when Guriel came up, Rich Hill sort of lingered behind the mound. He just let the Dodger Stadium crowd go at it. Sure. Just boo the heck out of this guy. He's like, okay, that's good. Let him know that it was not appreciated. Uh, Rich Hill sort of twisted the knife a little bit, let him go for a while. Uh, I see nothing wrong with that. It was a stupid thing to do. It was obviously insensitive. Uh, he'll pay for it uh, with the suspension coming up next year. But uh, like I said, I don't think it should detract from what's been a great World Series. And I think you Darvish saying it the way he did uh, allowed the moment to pass without it becoming a bigger thing. It facilitated compromise. I mean, Guriel's still going to lose $300,000 next year. It facilitated some compromise and some growth. And I think that's what we need to be looking for. All right. We'll – Go ahead. This is un- – we didn't have this on our script here, but I thought about when we were talking about stuff before. Uh, all of a sudden with this Florida job open, I'm getting a lot of tweets and concerned emails from Virginia Tech fans. Oh, is Justin Fuente going to go to Florida? Uh, I don't think so. I don't either. I don't think so. I mean this is – I just wanted to bring this up because I thought about it as this thing was going on. But th- this is going to be a really interesting offseason in terms of coaching changes. You got probably – Tennessee coming open. You've got probably Nebraska coming open. And yeah, I don't want to go out and say Mike Riley's going to get fired, but they bring in a new athletic director. They've really struggled. I think it's a definitely a possibility. Texas A&M could be open. Florida is open right now. These are some major jobs that are out there. And I think a lot of Hokies fans are going, uh, that's not good. Especially when they see that Fuente is the 35th highest paid coach in the country. Uh, so I think there's a lot of concern out there about whether he's going to leave. I, you know, nobody knows for sure what uh, a coach is thinking. Just my personal interaction with him, I don't feel like he would go anywhere after two years. It's just sort of a gut feeling. I, I feel like he, he's not the guy that bolts after two years in a situation. I feel like Virginia Tech is a really good situation. Yeah. And the thing that made me think about this was I was talking about Bud Foster's defense and how he took this job, um, knowing that he sort of had that ready-made thing on that side of the ball. Uh, if you go somewhere else, you know, Bud's not going. <laughs> I can't see him leaving Virginia Tech in that situation. Uh, you'd have to sort of rebuild, scrap everything, and, and start over in that sense. Uh, I don't think he's a guy that enjoys sort of the spotlight necessarily that's put on those SEC coaches. Uh, you know, he he grits and bears it through the uh, media sessions that he has now. I would wonder how it would play in a place like Texas A&M or you know, Florida where everything is scrutinized to such a high degree. Uh, the recruiting is dog-eat-dog in that situation. I'm not saying he would uh, attack it any less at Virginia Tech, but I think there's 
uh, other factors that play into all that stuff. And I, you know, I, I honestly think his family likes Blacksburg. You know, yeah. He's got a very young daughters. They just moved them a couple years ago. I think uh, they enjoy the sort of uh, mountainous outdoors region of Blacksburg. And I know every, every co- school that has a coach that they don't want to leave somewhere, the fans are like, Oh, he loves this place and he doesn't care about right. money. It's the perfect situation. I do think to a degree though, that it's, uh, a really, really good situation that he's already in, and he chose Virginia Tech for particular reasons. He likes working for Whit Babcock. I think that's been clear. And I, I think it would probably behoove Whit Babcock to look at his Fuente's contract situation and maybe up the compensation a little bit. Uh, I know they extended it last year. They didn't really add a whole lot of money to that, but at a certain point, it would make your coach feel better if you're giving them more money in a situation. I mean, that's just a a reality of what these uh, coaching situations are like. So I know I got a lot of tweets about that. A lot of emails are probably addressed in the mailbag tomorrow. I just, honestly, I just can't see him going to another job this early in his Virginia tech tenure. Uh, Perhaps I'm naive in that situation, but that's just sort of my take on the whole thing. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I was asked about it Monday on the radio about Florida. And I I think Florida is a totally separate case from maybe a Texas A&M type. I mean, I think uh, I agree. Everything you said about like, he's not just going to go to an SEC program to be an SEC coach. I mean, that's just not, I don't think that's him. I mean, I, I the, the, the Texas A&M thing would be interesting because a lot of people, you know, they had a two game series with Texas A&M and tech fans came away from Texas A&M going, they're just like us. Yeah. And Texas A&M oh, yeah. fans came to tech Corps cadets and, you and, know, and little country out there. Yeah. Like, yes. And, and he's from what he's from, he's Oklahoma. from Oklahoma, from and, Tulsa. So not that far from where he grew up. And we've talked before about the mama calling home. Uh, stuff that would be one where you know i think you, you might actually give it some thought if you're fuente and you're, and you're offered it um but florida i don't think is, is a concern at all i mean it just it, it would be so out of out of left field for me to see him leave for that job i just can't see it well i also i bring this up the bovada odds which you know who knows what this stuff exactly uh these came out earlier this week dan mullen nine to two favorite uh scott frost five to one Willie Taggart six to one, Mike Norvell, the Memphis coach, replaced Fuente there seven to one, and they had Fuente at eight to one. Uh, he's been brought up on a couple of lists. Bruce Feldman, Sports Illustrated, obviously very connected in the college football world, put him as a possibility on his list. Uh, as a reporter who has made a lot of those lists in the past, I can tell you that it's not being based off of hard and fast information that you're getting from the school. You're sort of picking some names out there that would make sense based on. You know what a school would be looking for. Obviously, an offensive-minded coach is what Florida has always really thrived with. Um, you know, you look at who's not making maybe enough money based on how they're doing right now. I think Fuente is outperforming what Virginia Tech is paying him. He's the fifth highest uh, paid coach to the public schools in the ACC, behind Bronco Mendenhall even. Uh, and you look at the success that they've had in the two programs at the, the same amount of time. Uh, it's not even close. Uh, and I think there's always just sort of an inclination to go well. You can do pretty well at Virginia Tech. Florida has won national titles before. And now I think Fuente looks at it and he thinks you can win a national title at Virginia Tech. It's competed for one before. It's gotten to the cusp. I think he thinks that's a possibility here, but it has actually happened at a place like Florida. Naturally, uh, people, when you're ranking the coaching jobs, people will put Florida higher on the list and therefore think that everybody would want to go up to that list. But, you know, as I mentioned in the mailbag last week, when people were concerned about the Tennessee job or the Texas A&N job, I quoted that great 90s philosopher Puff Daddy 
more money, more problems. <laughs> like, you know, with that becomes this expectation that you have to win and you have to win immediately. When you're a four and a half million dollar coach or whatever it is in the AC, or SEC, you know, Jim McElwain won two SEC East titles in his two years. And earlier this season, he was 16 and three in two plus seasons in SEC play, but he wasn't winning the games that mattered. He got blown off the field by Alabama a couple times. Uh, lost to Georgia on sun, uh, Saturday, 42-7. to uh, I forget what the other loss was, a couple other losses in there in the SEC. He wasn't winning the games that Florida fans uh, hold dear to their heart. And because of that, there's such a pressure for a coach to win in that sort of situation that they ousted him after two and a half years. Now, there was other stuff there. He's kind of you know, butting heads with the administration and things like that. But it's just amazing how quickly things can turn from it seems like this is going pretty well. You're winning these games. All of a sudden you're out the door just like that. I'm reporting it's going to be Scott Frost. I, I, I said Scott Frost from the start. I, I think, uh, you know, people say Dan Mullen, that Scott Strickland's the AD at Florida now who worked with, uh, with Dan Mullen in Mississippi State. And they go, oh, that's, you know, that connection there. That's the reason why he's going to be hired. The other part of that is he's worked with Dan Mullen before. Dan Mullen is very cocky and very sure of himself. And I think that brushes people the wrong way. So I, I wonder how good of a relationship that was necessarily. I've heard it was fine. Uh, we'll see if that's enough for him to go back to Florida. He was the OC there under uh, Urban Meyer for a while. But I think Scott Frost makes a ton of sense. And people have been, Scott Frost is going to go to Nebraska because that's where he played. Uh, I think Scott Frost is smart enough to understand what Nebraska is in this day and age versus what Florida is. And he, you know, he picked Central Florida. He was very picky about where he was going uh, for his first head coaching job. He wanted to go into a place that had those recruits that run that sort of Oregon offense. He was the Oregon offensive coordinator for a while. Uh, has the kind of speed and athleticism that you see, and you're just you're swimming in it in Florida. And if you go to Florida, you have to drive down the road to recruit that. If you're in Nebraska, you got to fly everywhere to find that kind of uh, caliber of athlete. So uh, I think Scott Frost would definitely take it if offered the job. We'll see if he gets offered the job. But if you know, obviously the odds bear this out. But I think Mullen and Frost are the top two candidates for that job. Interesting times in the Sunshine State. And we will be heading on a plane on Friday to see the game. Andy, let's do our predictions. The line will say Virginia Tech by three. Which way are you going? I'm going Virginia Tech 27 to 19, which is sort of an odd football score, but I think it might be an, an odd type game. I think it's tough to score touchdowns against Virginia Tech, so I think it might be uh, quite a few field goals for the Hurricanes. I don't think Miami is uh, as good as its record indicates right now. I don't think it's as good as its ranking indicates. I have questions about Virginia Tech. Uh, as well, but maybe not as much as Miami. I think just the Hokies are playing at a much higher level right now. I don't think they'll be intimidated going into that atmosphere. Uh, and I think defense travels. I think that's going to be a really tough defense for Miami to score on, and and Virginia Tech will do enough offensively and win this one. Uh, you know, eight points is what I'm predicting. I guess that's somewhat comfortably, but uh, yeah, that's my prediction. You said their running back is named Travis Homer. Yes. Well, this is Aaron Homer coming up with your with your score here. Virginia Tech 38, Miami 23. And that might be a lot of points for Miami. I, I think Tech wins this one by more than two touchdowns. Two touchdowns. I, I really, remember it was a couple years ago when we went down there, and you were just – this is a game Frank Beamer circles the wagons and wins all the – it might have been 2013. Was that the – whatever it was where they just went down there and I, I think – Logan Thomas game, right? Yeah, I think Trey Edmonds had four touchdowns in that game. Josh uh, – 
Stanford had a really big receiving game. They just they manhandled them start to finish in that game. I, I think that was 2013 when they went down there and won that game. Uh, I haven't heard you as confident about the Hokies going on the road since then, I think. Yeah. And it was also right. Miami. Yeah. This is – I mean, everything I said with the Bart Simpson metaphor, and you, and you please read Saturdays because the metaphor on Saturday will be even better. That's called a tease, folks. <laughs> well, we'll be there to cover it all, and we'll have more coverage in the interim. Be sure to check all that out on Roanoke.com. For Andy Bitter, this is Aaron McFarling. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy the game.